Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 12th, 2022. August is usually a quiet month when it comes to news especially mid-August, most people are on vacation. But today, of course, Donald Trump uh, once again steals the headlines about the search of his house in uh, Florida. But when you get beneath the headlines about Trump, there's some really pretty interesting news going on in the United States. The House is about to pass the climate tax and health package, uh, multi-trillion dollar package that may indeed change the environment, or at least the American environment. Uh, Lots of ideas about how uh, experimental green energy could get a a jolt of uh, not just energy, but cash from the government. But when it comes to cash, uh, the news isn't only positive. Uh, There was a release earlier this month that total household debt in the United States has surpassed $16 trillion in Q2 of 2022. Uh, Mortgages, auto loan and credit card balances have increased. And that debt has created an interesting new conversation about debt forgiveness, not just student loan forgiveness, which Joe Biden has been talking about, but an idea of a debt jubilee, the idea that all debt should be forgiven, not just in the United States. It's a debate taking place in the UK too. Um, And one of the most uh, articulate and outspoken supporters of the debt jubilee is my guest today, uh, Richard Vague. Uh, He's been uh, writing all sorts of things about, quoting Richard, a time for a debt jubilee. Um, And he indeed has a new book out, The Case for a Debt Jubilee. Um, Richard is talking to us from Harrisburg today. And unlike so many supporters of debt jubilees and these sorts of things, Richard's day job is the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And he is indeed talking to us from Harrisburg, the capital of uh, the state capital of Pennsylvania. Richard, are your financial friends, are they talking to you with all this talk on your part of a debt jubilee? You must be making some of them very nervous. You're also a venture capitalist. You're not some guy off the street, so to speak, in financial terms. You've been around the block. So uh, are you uh, are you still on speaking terms with a lot of your friends in high finance? Uh, absolutely. You know, I'm not necessarily out to advocate any cause uh, one way or the other, but I think my banking friends, and I, I was in and I've been in and around the industry for 40 years, recognize that debt levels are getting very high. And, you know, when I was a bank CEO, I would have been glad and very receptive for ideas on how to improve debt levels for consumers and businesses in a way that didn't harm my bank because it would make the economy broadly more healthy. Uh, Breaking the the debt down in America, $16 trillion on household 
debt uh, from mortgages, uh, 1.7 trillion in student debt for 2022. A lot of people would say, Richard, and I'm sure this is the argument you get time and time again in terms of this uh, case for a debt jubilee or your case for a debt jubilee. People borrow money and they have to um, and they have to pay it back. What about those of us, and I wouldn't necessarily include myself, but those of us who, who haven't borrowed money, who have been responsible financially, why should they be essentially punished for the irresponsibility of other people? Well, you've hit on an extremely important point, and that is the issue of fairness in constructing a debt jubilee program. You're absolutely right. You know, if we forgive a, a given student's debt, uh, where the student in the same situation who's in the dorm room next to them or in the office next to them was more diligent and paid off their debt, uh, you know, made the, did the, made the sacrifices to pay that debt off, uh, how is that fair? And we actually saw back in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, a debt forgiveness or a debt assistance program uh, that was uh, put forward by President Obama uh, get such an adverse reaction that it started something called the Tea Party. I mean, he was just uh, offering a little bit of a debt relief program for mortgage debt. And, uh, you know, next thing you knew, reporters on CNBC were ranting about how unfair that was. So, you know, even though in theory, I wish I had a magic wand just to make people's debt disappear. In practice, if we're going to try to get something done in the halls of Congress, it has to address the issue of fairness. So my proposal for student debt uh, jubilee, for example, creates a requirement for a certain amount of community service. Uh, and that, we think, addresses the fairness issue, but it creates a path, you know, it creates a light at the end of the tunnel, a way out of someone who's, who's burdened under student debt. We have to find ways that have fairness, but give hope. Richard, you're the author of a number of other books on finance, most of them rather miserable, although they're good books, A Brief History of Doom, 200 Years of Financial Crisis, and the next economic disaster, why it's coming and how to avoid it. There was an interesting piece I read um, when I was preparing for this about uh, comparing the, the stock market crash in 1929 uh, with today because of the rise of consumer card debt. To what extent is your case for debt jubilee a macroeconomic argument um, to... Uh, to uh, protect us from another major crash, a 1929-style crash? Well, it's part. It's certainly, you know, everything about my thesis has to do with macroeconomics. Uh, but I want to put things in perspective a little bit. There is, as you have said, you know, there's about eight, it's really closer to 18 trillion in, in household debt. There's another 20 trillion in business debt. So you're talking about, $40 trillion in private sector debt. And of that, let's almost 20 trillion of that, not quite, is real estate related. So you got almost $12 trillion in household mortgages. You got six or seven trillion in commercial real estate. Mm. 
So real estate as a whole is almost half of all private sector debt. And it's real estate excess. It's the mortgage boom in the 2000s. In the, in the lead up to the Great Depression, frankly, it was a huge housing boom. And a, you the Great Depression of 29 or the Great Recession of 2008? Both. Both. Absolutely both. We've done a lot of research in the night. That's interesting. I didn't know about how central real estate was in the Great Depression. I was assumed it was connected with Wall Street exuberant. Well, those two things are not unrelated because Wall Street was financing the housing boom even back in the 20s. They were selling bonds to finance real estate construction to the man on the street in denominations as little as $100. But we don't have, um, Richard, comparing our condition, I mean, I, I take your point on the 16 trillion of higher mortgages, and you said generally 20 trillion, if you include all the, the different mortgages. Um, but we don't have the kind of junk mortgages that we had in the, in, 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 in the, the early 2000s, do we? We don't. And I, you know, I guess the point I was about to make was, I mean, the Dodd-Frank has protected a us against that because you're the lenders now have to prove that the borrower has the ability to repay ATR. Um, and um, so you, we don't have that now, but I think the point I was going to make is only real estate is a large enough sector to create a national crisis. We can have a crisis in credit card lending and credit card lending is only about, let's call it a trillion dollars as compared to 18 trillion for real estate. Energy lending is only about a trillion dollars compared to 18 trillion. So you can have a credit card crisis, you can have an energy crisis, and those are going to be painful, but they're not going to cause the whole nation to crumble as it did in 1929 or 2008. So you have to kind of keep the size of the debt market you're talking about in perspective. Well, let's come back to this mortgage debt. I mean, I got a mortgage. Most of my friends have mortgages. I don't, I, I touch, I'm not on the brink of bankruptcy and most of my friends are. What is wrong with the $16 trillion in mortgages? That's just the nature of the, the, the real estate market, especially here in San Francisco. Most people don't have the millions of dollars to, to, to pay for a, for, a, for a house or an apartment. So the mortgage system works. It never seems to me, and I'm sure you will tell me I'm wrong. It never seems to me as if mortgages are real debt. Well, <laughs> there are That's a whole a lot of things to say, isn't it, Richard? That is <laughs> 2009 and 2010 that might might take exception to that. Was but let me tell you, what's going on now is nowhere the magnitude that it was in 2008. Uh, let's put it in perspective with by dividing it into GDP. Household debt in 2008 was almost 100% of GDP. Today, it's less than 80% of GDP. And so the, the inflated lending, the excessive, the over lending to the real estate industry was quite a bit worse in 2008 than it is right now. That doesn't mean we don't have smaller pockets of trouble. And you've talked about student debt. That's one of them. You know, the the burden on student debtors is very significant now, but it's just a $1.7 trillion slice. So you have to keep it in perspective. You seem to be, I'm not saying you're arguing against yourself, but from what you just said, 
doesn't that undermine any case for a debt jubilee? I mean, where's the crisis? Why do we need it? Well, you've raised a very important point. And, you know, when I write about this, I always make this distinction. There's rapid accumulation of debt that brings a crisis. And we've had more than our fair share of crises in the United States. However, there's just the overall burden of debt unrelated to a crisis that weighs down economic activity. So right now, to put it in perspective, in 1950, consumer debt to GDP was less than 20%. In 1980, it was 50%. Today, it's almost 80%. So even though it is not bringing a crisis, you're absolutely correct, it is burdening consumers and weighing down the growth of our country. So there's two kinds of problems. There's crisis problem over here. There's just a weight weighting down of debt that causes economies to be less vibrant than they otherwise. But, but Richard, and, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong. It, I suspect you're, you're talking a, a kind of monetarism, a, a financial fantasy that if we could free ourselves from all this debt, if, if I could get my mortgage back, then I would spend more money, which would invigorate the economy. But it's not real money, because who's going to pay to pay off my mortgage? Well, the problem of how to finance a jubilee is the problem. It's the heart and soul of this. But let's take the second half of your statement before we take the first half. If consumers had less debt, they would absolutely be spending more and economic growth would absolutely be higher. The frustration that economists and policymakers had for the last decade that, that economic recovery was tepid, wasn't really coming around rapidly, in my opinion, was entirely related to how much household debt that households were lugging around. They were spending so much on interest and principal repayment, they didn't have as much to spend on you know, doing home improvement, sending kids. Doesn't that stimulate, I'm jumping in, Richard, it's fascinating stuff, uh, and excuse the, the, the continual interruptions, but doesn't even the payment of debt stimulate the economy? You're, you're a banker. I mean, you're, you're paying your credit card, you're paying your bank, you're paying your lender, you're paying the mortgage company. Why doesn't that stimulate the economy? I'll tell you why it doesn't. And, you've, you've, you, and I don't mind the interruptions at all. And your questions are superb. So I'll tell you exactly why it doesn't. Because when a consumer, most debt relative to income is carried by, let's call it the bottom 60% of the economy. So if they're paying, uh, you know, interest and principal on their debt, that is a dollar for dollar reduction in the spending they do on other things. The recipient of that interest is banks and other lending institutions primarily. And their income doesn't create a dollar for dollar increase in their spending. It creates, you know, increased retained earnings. But in terms of the absolute measure of GDP, spending is reduced because the guy's paying the interest 
uh, spend less and the guys receiving the interest don't spend more. Uh, that's the heart and soul of the issue. What about the moral case? I, I, I take the economic case. I'm not an economist, but I'm slightly skeptical. What about the moral case? Could uh, a debt jubilee address the central problem, in my view, in America, which is the growing inequality and the disappearance of a middle? Well, I think you're right. I mean, you know, and, and I agree 100% with your analysis. If it, I'm writing a new book right now that it, the, the entire thesis of the book is how debt accumulation actually increases inequality. And to, and to give you a, you know, a stat on that, if you look at the period of 1989 to 2019, which is the only period where we have this data, the bottom 60%, their debt to GDP levels increased by 76%. Their net worth to GDP actually declined in that period. Whereas the top 10%, their debt levels only increased by 10%, which is tantamount to nothing over a 20 year span. And their net worth more than doubled right. in that period. So yeah, it's interesting, Richard. Is, could we say that there's smart and dumb debt? I mean, smart debt seems to me to be mortgage debt where you get tax relief. Uh, dumb debt is credit card debt where you end up paying 15 or 25%. And would it be fair to say that the wealthy are very good at figuring out smart debt, whereas the poor tend to fall for one reason or other into dumb debt? Well, I would agree with you, but I'd put different labels on it. And we do a very careful tracking of this. There's debt for spending and there's debt for asset purchases. So if you're, if you're getting a debt to, you know, go on a vacation or, you know, finance, uh, you know, a new big screen TV, I mean, that's just spending. And those, those dollars are frittered away, if you will. Whereas in the case of, of the wealthy, uh, who hold most of the real estate and stocks in the country, uh, they're using debt to buy an office building or a company. And so, yes, those are very different kinds of debt. What about the issue of addressing, Richard, um, uh, Richard um, why people build debt? Um, uh, especially, uh, I called it dumb debt. I didn't mean to suggest that the people who take it are dumb, but debt that is doesn't benefit them in economic terms why are they borrowing money? Is it because they're unemployed? Is it because they're spending it as some perhaps Republicans might suggest on drinks and drugs and, and are irresponsible? What's your take on uh, why poor people's debt is growing so dramatically in America? Well, it's a, it's a critical question, you know, it's uh, because we're, we're absolutely seeing this. There are a lot of folks out there that say, that consumers debt is increasing because their wages have not kept up with overall GDP. Mm. So they're financing a lifestyle that their wages no longer support. And that's probably an important part of the equation. I will tell you too, that one of the reasons households uh, incur debt is because the lending industry is skillful in purveying debt. I mean, during the great financial crisis, there were thousands upon thousands of telemarketers calling folks and saying, you know, you ought to buy a, another house or upgrade your house because, 
there'll be no down payment. Uh, we're going to give you, you know, 1% interest for the first two years. And, you know, how can you possibly lose? So there's, there's a lot of that in there. There's another big element to this, and that is most of the problem debt we see come from unexpected emergencies. And over half of these mm. are healthcare yeah. emergencies. Right, so, right, right. You know, the bankruptcy we see, you know, over half of those cases were precipitated by unexpected healthcare expenses, surprise medical bills and the like. But then again, you're not getting to the core of the problem. I mean, debt jubilee, uh, I looked up the term jubilee, is uh, a season of celebration, a special anniversary. So you would wipe the slate clean in theory, but you don't profoundly change the American healthcare system or American capitalism. So even if you had a, a debt jubilee, even if your case is compelling, why would anything change in 20, 20 or 30 years? Why wouldn't we be back to where we are now? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, a debt jubilee isn't a panacea for all of our ills. Uh, it has to be, you know, there's a lot of things structurally that need to be addressed in the U.S. economy and healthcare. perhaps is at the top of that list. So if you did jubilee and you did nothing else, um, but even if you did Jubilee and nothing else, it would bring relief over some interim period. And that interim period could be decades, frankly. So, you know, I'm not against it, but I don't disagree with you that it's not by a long shot the only thing that we need to be addressing. But let me talk about the term Jubilee for a second, because this was, a, you know, a revelation to me because I had been studying debt for a long time and had come to the conclusion that debt always grows and it's a cumulative problem and we need a structural solution to that. But I began to find that ancient civilizations had regularly invoked debt amnesty programs. And I'm talking about uh, Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians. I'm talking about ancient Israel, which is where the term Jubilee directly comes from. We find this in China. Uh, we find this all over the place. What would happen is there were primarily agricultural debts, and you would see this exact same thing happen, which is that over time, over decades, in many cases, there would be an accumulation of debt. And, you know, the consequences of going in arrears on that debt were more severe in those times. It could be your child that you had to give up as a bond servant if you were in arrears on your debt. So a king would find that over the course of the time, his economy came to a very bad place because of this accumulation of debt. And they would go in and they would do a, you know, a debt amnesty, not of all debt, but of all agricultural debt, you know, subsistence debt. They didn't forgive wealthy merchants debt at that same time. And it would have, in fact, a rejuvenating effect on the economy. So it was, it, it was fascinating to me. And I think, uh, you know, it was uh, helpful to me to know that this is not a new problem. This is a structural problem built into any economic system. And if you don't have something of a safety valve, some structural way to kind of bleed off excess debt, you're going to have accumulating problems that stagnate an economy. Richard, are you in David 
Graeber's camp. Uh, he, his, he had a best-selling book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Graeber, unfortunately, is no longer around, but is one of capitalism's or was one of capitalism's most perceptive critics. Do, do you think that his book on debt is um, valuable? Is that where you got a lot of your wisdom about the history of debt? You know, uh, his, that book is spectacular. Uh, and it and it covers so much more than debt. I mean, it's almost a book about human nature as much as it is a book, a book about debt, which, by the way, I'm not sure debt and owing things is is not integral to human nature. And that's one of the points he makes. So I, I would recommend that book to, to anyone. Hopefully after you don't you share Graeber's fundamental hostility to capitalism, do you? No, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not sure. I, there's probably two thirds of what Graeber wrote in that book that I, uh, I would agree with, but, and maybe a third that I wouldn't, but that doesn't mean he's not brilliant and all his points aren't worth pondering. What about the generational thing, uh, Richard, when it comes to debt? One headline I found is the millennials are more than a hundred thousand dollars in debt, mostly not from mortgages. The mortgages, uh, are the ones taken out by their parents. It's a very different kind of debt from generation to generation. My take is that at some point, my generation will pass their wealth, which is mostly in real estate, down to the millennials. Um, but do you see there being structural differences in debt? And are you concerned with millennial debt versus the debt of the baby boomer generation, or for that matter, younger generations, Gen Y or Z? Absolutely. I think, you know, in the course of my life, I have been surprised at about how profound the changes through time have been. And you point out a very important one because, and this gets back to an earlier comment you made about dumb debt versus smart debt. And I think you're, there was wisdom in your comment. So, you know, a lot of the debt you're talking about here is student debt plus, you know, credit card or other, you know, uh, unsecured loan kinds of debt. So it's a lot of what I would call spending debt. It isn't debt that accumulate, that allows you to accumulate wealth through holding real estate or stocks. 70 plus percent of all the net worth in this country in the, among households. And really that's probably true of any major Western developed country is in the form of real estate or stock. You know, it, almost nothing else is consequential in that equation. So if you're going to accumulate wealth, it is going to largely going to have to be through stock or real estate. So if you're if you're using debt and, you know, I, I would always advocate caution in any use of debt. But let's just say you're buying a house that that's a, a way to accumulate wealth that can be generational wealth, as you suggest. And. And the younger folks aren't accumulating that kind of asset yet. So it's a concern. I don't want to make this a conversation about Donald Trump. We talk about him too much. But what happens if Trump picked up your book and said, well, the case for a debt jubilee, we're not going to pay the Chinese back. We owe them trillions of dollars, we Americans. What's to stop a, jet, a debt jubilee overflowing into the international financial system? Well, I'm not sure that'd be a bad thing if it did. So... Well, you don't uh, think the Americans should just stop paying the Chinese? Well, I, I got it. We put things in perspective in this conversation. I want to put that in perspective. China holds about 3% of U.S. debt. 
you know, all this. Uh, that's China. interesting. I didn't know that. In China, well, who who holds most of it? Uh, Americans, you know, so almost. So we're lending to ourselves in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, all the all the talk about China having all this debt and blah, blah, blah is never really. That's Trump true. talk then, really. It's just well, more like. And it predated Trump. Exaggeration. You know, uh, you know it, what happens is, and it's very simple. If, if China has a trade surplus and there's more dollars coming into their country than going out, they have to do something with those dollars. And what they end up doing most of the time is just buying uh, U.S. treasuries, which uh, has a uh, kind of a sterilizing or neutralizing effect on their currency when they do that. That kind of keeps things in balance. So you you have if you have a trade surplus, you have to do something with the net currency that you gain. That's all that's going on there. And and frankly, their trade surpluses, even though it's picked up a little here lately, is far far below where it was in 07 and 08. It's it's a kind of a plus two percent. And you can go the other way and suggest the real debt crisis is in the developing world. Um, all sorts of numbers about how much more money now is uh, owed uh, uh, that uh, countries in Africa in particular are taking on more and more debt. So you can make the counter argument as well in international terms. Uh, there's so much to talk about here, Richard. What about the issue of tech and crypto? I did a show with the uh, the Colorado-based uh, venture capitalist Brad Feld yesterday, and he described crypto as a plain old Ponzi scheme. That you would find other people in Silicon Valley who would suggesting with crypto you wouldn't have debt. So the case for a, de a debt jubilee might go along with revolutionizing the financial economy on crypto lines. What's your take on crypto and? Could this help the case for a, a debt jubilee? You know, I'm not sure crypto is relative to the issue of debt is that big of an issue one way or the other. I think the aggregate value of all cryptocurrencies in the world right now is about a trillion dollars. And this is in an almost $400 trillion economy. So it's, it's a small item. And if you look at the folks that have gotten into trouble on crypto, it it all has to do with debt. Mm. Crypto companies that unsecured borrow, debt, though dishonest debt, essentially. I mean, it's not good or bad debt. It's just it's it's real debt that they pretend isn't debt. They dress up and then they get caught with it. But part of it's just regular old conventional debt too. It's a crypto company that borrowed from somebody else to have the capital to get started, and and so forth. I mean, it's debt of all sorts. It's 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 borrowings that households made in order to buy into the crypto boom that are now underwater loans. So, you know, a lot of the problems in crypto, I might even say most of the problems in crypto are tangled up in debt in some form or fashion. So any idea that crypto is this non-debt related thing is just, is just a false understanding of it. You know, neutral what? currencies that don't have anything to do with debt are, are welcome and they won't be a problem. Uh, they just had a lot of debt here. Finally, Richard, uh, we did a show actually earlier today with Dean Schroeder, co-author of Practical Innovation in Government, How Frontline Leaders Are Transforming Public Sector Organizations. He basically argues that the real innovation is taking part at a local level. You're a local politician in many ways of Pennsylvania. You're involved, um, as I said, with uh, uh, you are um, you are 
the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of, of Pennsylvania, which is why you're talking to me from Parisburg. Could you innovate on this debt um, jubilee locally? It's unlikely. I mean, Joe Biden's struggling to even talk about a debt jubilee for students, let alone across the economy. Could you innovate on a local level? Is this the kind of really radical reform that could be built from below by innovators like yourself at a local level? Could you could you have a debt jubilee, for example, in Pennsylvania? You know, the the as a you can do a little bit here and there, but you can't do anything at a scale significant enough to really make a difference except at the federal level. States, you know, almost all states have to balance their budgets. The federal government does not. The federal government has the power, as we all know, to create money. Uh, so, you know, any any broad financing of a jubilee, because that's what it would have to be, uh, is really going to have to come at the federal level, for better or for worse. And ironically, you say financing, someone's going to have to borrow the money to pay off the debt, which is the ultimate irony. That's true. You know, one in 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 this in the last chapter of the book that uh, we're talking about today. I talk about a way for the government to create money that's not debt related. A lot of the book talks about how all money today. Is yeah, your, your, your chapter is called The Enigma of Government Debt, whatever that means. So you're, I'm guessing you're suggesting that government debt isn't real debt. Well, I, I suggest a number of things. The government has a lot of capacity, but one of the things that it has done from time to time along the way, including in the Civil War, was actually, you know, we, we throw around the term printing money. The U.S. government doesn't print money. The U.S. government issues debt. The government could do something similar to what it's done from time to time in, in the past, and that is truly create a fiat currency that is not associated with debt. And that chapter uh, describes a process for doing that. So there's some amount of financing of the Jubilee that could be done, be done with non-debt-related government instruments. Well, Reginald, I'm not going to ask you to lend me any money, either as Richard Vague, as wealthy man, or as the, as the Secretary of Finance for Pennsylvania. It's certainly an interesting argument and a very provocative one, the case for debt jubilee. You put it, I think, in a, in a, in a very articulate and responsible way. And congratulations on this new book. What else are you reading these days. You're a prolific author on lots of different elements of the economy. Do you read economy books, Richard, or do you read novels, histories? What are your favorite kind of reading? We, ha we have to... <laughs> I'm, I'm actually writing uh, two books at, the, at, the, at this point in time. One I'm about to finish, which is a new economic, macroeconomic theory. So I'm doing a lot of reading on a, the history of American public. Are you an MMT guy? Are you a modern, modern monetary well, economic? I think a lot of what they say is valid. It doesn't go, you know, it doesn't go nearly far enough uh, because it really just addresses government debt. And most debt in the world in this country is private debt, not government debt. So what, what they do, I think, is reasonably valid. It, they just operate within a very narrow area. So... So at any rate, you know, their stuff's worth uh, 
reading. I'm, I'm is, there a, is there a particular writer on that front that you think is credible? Well, our, our uh, you know, I'm, I'm a friend of Stephanie Kelton, who I think. Does yeah, Kelton's been on the show. She's good. I mean, she's very articulate. And she's articulate and she's delightful. So her book yeah, is. Which doesn't necessarily make her right, Richard. Well, in but in fact, it, people who are articulate and delightful tend, right generally tend to be wrong, but that's another issue. <laughs> whether she's right or wrong, uh, she's thought provoking and uh, articulate. And she has a colleague uh, whose name is Randall Ray, who wrote a textbook on modern monetary theory. So, you know, after you've read her book, you should read his, which which I think is an uh, extremely well-written book that really kind of gets into the accounting underpinnings of things. And whether you agree with it or dis disagree with what he writes there, it's well-argued and important information. 